Thank you. Appreciate very much those thoughts of other Lynn shared with us today. And on one final point in relation to the ongoing debt of loving one another, um, I always have to mention in relation to that debt, um, you know, given the nature of fallen human beings, even the things that are generated fallen human beings, um, human nature is such that uh, we often find occasion to um, uh, have business on business or um, other barriers, relational barriers that might cause us to doubt the continuity of that obligation. Do I still need to forgive? Uh, do I still need to, to love unselfishly and sacrificially? It reminds me of uh, what Bradley shared an instance of a, a marital counseling situation that she was involved. The husband and wife were so great odds with one another that he laid before the husband the biblical obligation of husband's love and wife, Jesus Christ, love the church and gave himself for it. Uh, he said, uh, husband, I just don't know if I can do that. I just don't feel that kind of love. Of course, that's not really an adequate objection, but Brother Bradley uh, went to the backup verse, which was, uh, love your neighbors as yourself. He said, even if you can't view her as the, in the same way that you view her years ago when you married and felt in the throes of love, he said, you still have an even broader obligation to love your neighbors. And certainly, she's uh, at the very least your neighbor. And he said, well, I don't know. Sometimes she's not very neighborly. But I'm bad like that. Well, okay, I've got one you can't get around. He said, the scripture also says, love your human. So, in, in our human relations, whether we feel uh, tightly bound together in the very closest dimensions of love, or whether those relations are sometimes strained and stretched, we realize the obligation still stands. It's both an obligation and a privilege. And the point that I started out to make, and we'll make now, is that that obligation is not the obligation specifically that we owe to each other, at least not for each other's sake. It's an obligation of debt we owe to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in law, there's this concept called the third-party beneficiary, which I think nicely explains uh, the nature of this obligation. Christ has done so much for us that it is but our reasonable service to give him everything in return, uh, our, our lives, our our wills, our, our purposes, our ambitions, our homes, our families, our hearts, all our resources, everything that we have any sort of command over at all, we are to place these things at Christ's disposal willingly, consciously, and purposefully, because he's done so much for us that even all of that doesn't come close to beginning to repay that debt. And a part of that debt, as you make clear in John chapter 13, is that we love one another as he has loved us. Because of what he's done for us, um, suppose my son Zachary over here uh, is about 10 years, he's a big, fine, tall, strapping young boy, uh, maybe an independent uh, young man living uh, in a household of his own. Suppose he and I come to odds with each other over some issue and, 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 and resent each other or, or have a hard time getting along together. Uh, we can't use that as an excuse or uh, allow that to be a barrier for, between us prevents our fulfilling of those, those obligations, because I don't owe it to Zach, I owe it to the Lord Jesus Christ, to treat Zach as a brother, and to love him for Christ's sake. So, I add my hearty amen to uh, my hearty and wordy amen to Brother Glenn's remarks. I want to turn to First Chronicles chapter 16, and if you turn there with me, I'll just uh, set up a scene here a little bit, this is of course when 
the Ark of Covenant is being brought back to Jerusalem. David, as a family king, has observed that uh, during the entire reign of Saul, the people of Israel had, had not at all consulted the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a visible symbol of God's presence and even of God's communication with his people. There was a space between the cherubim over the mercy seat of the Ark um, where it said God communed and, and even spoke to, uh, to his delegates who would communicate those messages to God's people. And David was, for all of his faults and weaknesses, he was very conscientious in most instances about wanting to seek the direction and wisdom of God. He wanted to inquire of the Lord even before making some decisions that we might think were completely within the realm of his own ability. He would say, well, why are you going to bother the Lord with that? David, just go ahead and take care of it. But he knew the importance of consulting uh, and seeking the wisdom of God. And, of course, James in the New Testament reminds us that that is a, a promise that we unwaveringly, single-mindedly seek the wisdom and direction of God. He promised he will give it. So David was wise in this regard that he, he sought direction from the Lord. And it bothered him that Israel had fallen out of the practice of uh, explicitly going to the Lord uh, in the presence of this, this symbol of God dwelling with his people, the Ark of the Covenant. And so he said, we need to bring it back. And and they went down to Kirjef Jerem and, and began to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. And this is the, the famous or infamous occasion in which Uzzah reached up to steady the Ark as it was being carried on a cart, uh, not in conformity with the, the pattern that God had set up for the transport of the Ark of the Covenant. And even in spite of his perhaps good intentions, Uzzah was struck dead by God for violating the... Um, well, I'll just read what it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 11. Uh, the Lord made a breach upon Uzzah, verse 10. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before the Lord. So that made probably the rest of the people who were transporting the ark back to Jerusalem a little more nervous about transporting it because parts it instead in the house of Obed-Edom and said, we'll come back for it later. Months later, then, three months later, they go to return, and, and David is more specific this time about the uh, qualifications of men who can carry the ark and, and the manner in which they to do it. And they bring the ark back, and it is an occasion of great rejoicing and delight in First Chronicles chapter 16. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent, and David will pitch for it, and they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. The part I'm really interested in, there are two psalms here that are actually... Uh, essentially duplicates of, uh, of, of specific psalms in the book of Psalms. Uh, the 105th, I believe, and the 96th Psalm are recounted here essentially in their entirety. And it's, it seems likely that David actually composed the city delivered these psalms into the hand of Asaph and his brethren, the, the musicians, those who uh, sang, they didn't just read these psalms usually, they sang them. And so he gave them these words that uh, had been given to them by the Holy Spirit of God. And I want to focus especially on the second of those two psalms, the 96th psalm, uh, which begins in verse 23. So we're in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 23. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, his marvelous works among all nations. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, he also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in his presence. 
strength and gladness are in his place. Give unto the Lord, he tended to the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. What we see here is, and I'll read, continue reading in a moment, but what we see here already is this, this obligation and privilege that we have to declare the glory of God, to acknowledge the glory of God, to exalt the glory of God, to magnify it, and that this is something that God's nature and God's glory, by its nature, simply deserve. It is, if, if you've ever, it's hard for us to even come up with an adequate comparison because everything falls so far short, but if you've ever tasted someone's cooking that was just so good, you had to say, you know, I just feel obligated to come in and tell you this was the best whatever that I've ever tasted. Or if you are maybe uh, somebody who enjoys art and you've gone to a museum and you see a, a work of art that just strikes you with its depth and beauty and expression, you just have to seek out the artist and say, I just that piece of art that really moved me. It was very meaningful and, and beautiful and impressive. These are, again, faint comparisons, but they give perhaps a bit of the idea of what we have in mind, what the Word of God has in mind in relation to this idea of declaring or acknowledging or exalting the glory of God. His glory, his nature, his perfection, his holiness, as we'll see here, are such that when we have a proper view and even a proper glimpse of these things, we are compelled, we're driven inwardly to, to acknowledge this and to praise God for these things that are who he is. We're not just praising him, you understand, for what he does. There are marvelous things that he does and has done and will do and has promised to do, and we should give praise and thanks to God for all those things. But we're not to have a relationship with God that is predicated only on what he does or what he gives. We're to have a relationship with God that is based on who he is and, and the, very, the very nature of this person he's doing. And so David says here, very powerfully and aptly, that we owe God the glory in every situation in life, and particularly in this glorious occasion which they were celebrating. Give unto the Lord, you kindred of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Those are two words we might not have thought to put together. Uh, sometimes holiness, uh, as it's understood today, is maybe misunderstood as rigor or of obligation or rules. But holiness is something that characterizes the very essence of God. In fact, um, I, I suggest to you perhaps that of all the attributes of God, it's hard to say one is greater than another. It's probably inappropriate to say one is greater than another. But I would suggest to you that perhaps holiness is central to all of them. And, and, and one reason I say this is because you can take the adjective holy and you can properly use that adjective to describe every other one of God's characteristics. Uh, even characteristics that sometimes seem like we're not sure they belong on the same page. God's wrath is holy. And so is God's love. His love and wrath are both holy. God's sovereign pleasure is holy. God's purpose is holy. So holiness is, is a definitive characteristic about God. It's something that is fundamental to the way he reveals himself to us. And it means that he does what is right. By his own definition and standard, he has determined and declared what is right. And it is, in fact, a great privilege for us to serve a God characterized by holiness. Um, 
we've been doing a little study, the Heinemann has been leading a study back at home uh, in Chattanooga on the, the, the topic of Iran. And uh, for sake of comparison, uh, were we attempting to worship under the framework of Islam, uh, the very word itself means submission, uh, there are a lot of uh, attributes of Islam that at first glance sound very similar to the revelation of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But you quickly come to see that, that the God of Islam, the false God uh, of Islam, is one whose who's, who's, uh, nature and actions do not have this inherent holiness and rightness about them. In fact, some who have been delivered from Islam express it as a sort of a, a sense of hopeless arbitrariness. There are just these things that the Quran says Allah expects, and, and, and there's no there's no rhyme or reason, no connectedness to them, no, 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 no clarity to them. And I'm not suggesting that we can totally grasp and understand all of God's ways and means and attributes, but there is a beautiful harmony to the way Scripture reveals the character of God so that without a great deal of explanation or, or thought required, we can simply acknowledge that, it is, that, that God's holiness is a beautiful attribute of His, and when we worship the Lord in reflected holiness or imparted holiness, from that the God uh, works in us, as Brother Glenn's already shared from Philippians, that, that that is a beautiful thing as well. It's beautiful to worship a glorious, holy, beautiful God in the way that that God has said we ought to worship Him. He continues in verse 30, Fear before Him all the earth, the world also shall be stable, that it not be moved. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let men among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the fields rejoice in all that is therein. Then shall the trees of the wood sing out at the presence of the Lord, because he cometh to judge the earth. O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And say ye, save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather us together, and deliver us from the heathen, that we may give thanks to thy holy name, and glory in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So it's, a, it's a, a precious psalm of really just an ode of praise and worship uh, that's captured here in First Chronicles 16 and in Psalm 96. Let's turn over to the book of Isaiah now, the prophet Isaiah, in the 42nd chapter. My, my subject this afternoon, by the way, uh, is the... Passage in Chronicles was not clear enough, or if I was not clear enough about it. My, 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 my topic that I want to set before us is this notion of the glory of God being central to all that we think, say, and do. Central to our very purpose for being. In Isaiah chapter 42, a great messianic passage of the prophecies of Isaiah, speaking of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who would come to open the blind eyes and bring out prisoners from prison and then to sit in darkness out of the prison house and says, much uh, similar to Isaiah chapter 61, the first few verses there, which the Lord Jesus Christ actually read in the synagogue aloud in, in Luke chapter 4, and, 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 and profoundly and amazingly closed the scroll and said, this day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears. This is a, a, kin, a kindred prophecy here in chapter 42, not the very one you read, but one that reads very similarly. And in this context, interestingly, because it's a context about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the coming Messiah, the prophet records the, word, records the words of God here in the 8th verse as follows. I am the Lord, of Jehovah, that is my name, 
and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. So here, among other places, God declares his uniqueness. He says there's a way that we're to glorify God, a way that God deserves glory that no man ever can. No matter how great a man's accomplishments, whether it's on the field of uh, athletics or in politics or a mighty military uh, victor or, or you know, whatever sphere of accomplishment that man may exalt, one man may exalt another man for, that exaltation will never touch the hem of the garment of the glory that is due to the name of the Lord God. And yet, that very same God does glorify His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if the verse here in Isaiah 42, 8 says that God says He will not give His glory to another, and He does give His glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, what's the deduction from that? Clearly the Lord Jesus Christ is not another. He is very God. He is one with the Father. And so it is fitting and proper and, and, and beautiful that God the Father glorifies the Son. That God that the Son glorifies the Father. And then when the Son, when, when Jesus Christ is preparing to depart from this earth, he says the Spirit will come. Another of the same kind is the nature of the kind of word that he uses there. Another just like me, in other words. And he will glorify me. He will remind you of the things I've taught you. So, so you have the triune Godhead engaged in this this perfect uh, symmetry of each member, each person of the Godhead glorifying the others, and yet God never shares his glory with another, because each of them is holy, holy God. In the next chapter, the 43rd chapter of Isaiah, we read uh, a, a promise that God made to Israel, which I think uh, by the, the, the breadth of its language also fittingly applies in every age to all of God's children, but even if you don't agree with me about that, the seventh verse explicitly broadens at least a portion of the promise to all of God's children. Uh, this is the passage where he says, Fear not, Israel, I redeem thee, I call thee by thy name, thou art mine, I will be with thee when the path of the waters, through the rivers they shall not overflow thee, when thou walkest through the fire they shall, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. And at the end of this passage here, the uh, first seven verses of Isaiah 43, he says in verse 7, even everyone that is called by my name, every person God has called, as Brother Glenn brought out from Romans chapter 8, everyone that he has purposed from before the foundation of the world to justify, to glorify, everyone who before knew he predestinated, every one of them, he says, I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. And we saw in Chronicles that not only was it the call of David and call of the Holy Spirit to the people of Israel assembled there to glorify God, but he even went out into the inanimate creation and said the trees and the oceans and the rocks and these things would, would praise, would bring praise and glory to God. Which reminds us that Jesus said something very similar when he entered into Jerusalem and people tried to shush the little children who were crying Hosanna. And he said if they were quiet, that the rocks would cry out. To his name. So we see that God's holiness, God's glory, by very nature, is such that it draws forth praise from his creation. The, if, you, if you, even in this fallen world where everything is tainted by sin, uh, perhaps you've had the experience of just you know, looking out across a, uh, a beautiful view from the mountains or, or something out, you just looked across the horizon, across the ocean, 
in, in just in a moment, to look at the Grand Canyon, you experience in a moment just this overwhelming sense of awe that turns your thoughts immediately to the Lord God who made those, those overwhelming, glorious, natural features. Well, the crowning work of the creation week was not any of these natural things. It was man whom he made in his image, male and female created in him. And he says that we, even more than all of these inanimate uh, aspects of creation, even more than the animals, even more than the plants, we are created here in Isaiah 42.7 for his glory. It's a, it's a sad thing and a frustrating thing sometimes to see a young person, honestly, sometimes an older person, struggling with some basic existential questions like, who am I? Why am I here? You know, you, you want your children to, uh, to find the right niche, find the, develop the right skills, have a, have a good, uh, you know, a life ahead of them and, and feel like they're on the right path. And sometimes somebody gets off track and, and loses their way and, and gets a, a sense of confusion about where they're really going. And, and it's a very hard thing to see when it seems like someone doesn't even have a sense of their own purpose. Why am I here and what am I supposed to be doing? Well, here is the principle that will ground you, whether you're uh, an engineer or an architect or an accountant or anything else. Uh, God has called you as his creature. And if you're a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's called you even more especially as his beloved to have as the central purpose of your life to bring glory to God. All that you do should point not to yourself or not even to others, but should point everyone, even your own thoughts, to the glory of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 1, going all the way back to the beginning of the prophet's words here, uh, he confronted the nation of Israel with some things that they were doing that if you had asked them, they would have told you, yes, we're glorifying God by doing these religious activities. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, God through the prophet challenges them and says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, says the Lord? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of egos. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my court? Bring no more vain oblation. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assembly, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hated. They are a trouble unto me, and I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Well, that is a fearsome declaration. And it's especially unnerving to someone who is going through, as I think in, in the words of Paul, reflecting on his uh, prior life as Saul of Tarsus, uh, thinking he was doing the Lord's service, thinking that he was uh, doing things that were not even just neutral, but he thought they were good things. He thought, this is serving God when I go out and compel Christians to blaspheme, when I, when I persecute the church and, and make war against it. He said, I'm honoring God by doing these things. The Israelites here in, in Isaiah's day were saying the same thing. We're, we're honoring God by going through our empty traditions, different from the sort of traditions Brother Glenn read to us about. We're, we're, we're glorifying God by going through these traditions, going through these rituals, going through these religious practices, and God essentially says, I'm disgusted by it. I have no interest in it, no need, which is something we need to remind ourselves of. There's no way in which God needs us. He doesn't need me to add to him in any way. My efforts, our efforts to glorify and praise him do not make him a bigger or better or more perfect God. 
What they do is they simply rightly acknowledge the reality as it is. Someone made the illustration I think is very helpful. When we talk about magnifying God, what do you do with a magnifying glass? Uh, some of these little boys may have been out on the sidewalk and looking at ants and uh, walk by or little bugs and put up a magnifying glass to get a better look at them. I know that's what you're doing with a magnifying glass, right? And as you were doing that, uh, the bug got bigger. But not really. The bug is still exactly the same size. It just looks bigger, right? You have a bigger view, a better view of the thing that's being magnified. When we magnify God, we're not making God bigger. We're making him bigger in our minds. We're making our conception of him greater and clearer when we, when we exalt him and magnify and, and glorify him as we are called to do. But we must understand that that is not accomplished through empty ritual. In fact, he goes through here, uh, after condemning all their religious acts, he tells them that the problem is a heart problem. He says in verse 16, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. So it's a matter of the heart, and then the words and actions proceed out of the heart, as Jesus taught us. And so our actions betray what our real desires are. And, and if we are talking a good game about serving God, talking a good game about church or religious activity, but we draw nigh to our lips but our hearts are far from Him, God of course sees that entirely. He knows perhaps even better than we, certainly better than we know ourselves. And He sees the true thoughts and intents of our hearts and calls those into question here for these people in Isaiah. And we should call our murders similarly into question to make sure that we are truly desiring to honor and glorify God by what we do. Let's go over to the New Testament now. In Matthew chapter 5, in a couple of passages here where uh, Jesus gives some specific examples about how we can glorify our Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, I'm just going to read this one verse out of context. It's a wonderful context, but I don't have time to dwell on it today. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So there's something here that is about what we do. If you say your works, there's, there's, there's obedience involved, there's, there's fruit to be born, as we'll see in another passage. As, as, as Jesus calls us to walk obediently before him, and doing so glorifies him. But when you do something good, like the cooking I talked about earlier, or the work of art, when you do something good, someone may want to praise you for it. And even take it out of the natural realm, take it with spiritual dimension. If you bear a cup of cold water, literally or figuratively, with somebody in Jesus' name, and they appreciate that, and they express their appreciation to you, that is an occasion for you to come around and point the glory to Christ. I don't think it's wrong to say thank you and acknowledgement for someone's expression of appreciation or, or you're welcome, but, it, but, but we should never leave it there. We shouldn't make it merely a human transaction by, by talking about it in those terms. We should point to Christ and give him the glory. And, and when we're expressing appreciation to one another, we should say, we, we, we have the, the opportunity to say something like, 
instead of thank you to say, I thank the Lord that He put that on your heart. That was exactly what I needed. We're giving the glory to God when we do that. We're reminding ourselves and the other person that we're simply both creatures uh, of, of God and, and servants of Christ who are attempting to glorify Him by our words and actions. In a similar passage in John chapter 15, He tells us in the um, parable of the true vine, John chapter 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So we're followers of Christ as we are fruitful in his service. And as we are fruitful in his service, we are glorifying the Heavenly Father. We're glorifying the Father through the example and teaching the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's look a few pages back in John to the time that Jesus was interacting with the woman as well as Samaria. And you'll recall that he said in John chapter 4, verse 23, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So again, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of, of our having uh, a God-honoring motivation and desire in what we do. And it's a matter of doing according to thus saith the Lord. We can't be like Uzzah and say, well, you know, God gave instructions to do it this way, but I think I'll do it a different way, and God will understand and appreciate that. We need to do God's work God's way, because that's when God will bless the work, and that's when God will receive the work as a true act of obedience and something that brings glory to his name. There's a, a, this is a principle that applies, as I've already said, in one sense to all of creation, even inanimate creation, even unregenerate creatures, human creatures, but... But there's a special sense in which it applies to the believer, as we've seen there in the words of Christ in Matthew and John. It applies in our homes. Uh, we should glorify God, seek to glorify Him in our families by the way we behave, the way we talk, the way we interact one with another within the home and outside the home. And it applies in our congregation. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 says, well, Paul's prayer here for the things that have to do, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the, according to the power that worketh in us, God working in us to will and to do his pleasure, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So folks have sometimes said, well, I can glorify God just as well out on the creek bank. I think one time I even had a fellow tell me he can glorify God better outdoors than he can in the congregation of the saints. I don't deny that you can glorify God by acknowledging the beauty of his created order and, and rejoicing, reveling in in natural creation. But according to the testimony of God's word, there is a unique way that God intends for us to glorify Him in corporate worship. That the church, at the assembly, the congregation, is designed, just as Isaiah said, we as individuals are designed, our purpose is to glorify Him. So, the fundamental purpose of the church is to glorify God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus 
throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's look at some more specific examples of occasions that, and, and ways in which we can glorify God that maybe wouldn't at first occur to us. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. The apostle says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That sounds clear enough, and that's consistent with everything we've read so far. But let's continue. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, that is the people who are persecuting you, he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So he says that the way we suffer is something that can bring glory to God. The next two verses, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So he says here we can actually glorify God because of our suffering. We can glorify God through our suffering. One person asked, uh, a few years ago I read, the person asked, why do Christians suffer from these dread diseases like cancer and so forth? Why, why, why does God simply not remove those things from their lives? Well, there could be a number of answers given to that question, but the one answer that I, that I read that was emphasized, I thought was a very good one. Uh, the answer was, Christians are allowed to suffer so that the world can see the difference in how Christians suffer. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a disciple seeking to walk in his footsteps, and some calamity befalls you, whether it's in the nature of outward persecution, as Peter's talking about here, or even in the nature of some natural calamity, some some disease, some some uh, accident as we look at it, these, these things that happen that are tragic to us, there's no denying the pain and the, the hurt of that. We're not to stoically pretend that there's no, there's no pain involved in it. But in our pain, we are led to the feet of the cross, led to the feet of the Savior. We are led to depend upon Him. We're led to call upon Him, to cry out of our helplessness for His great and mighty strength in our behalf. And when we do that, whether we are thinking about it or not, we are glorifying Christ by saying, He is great and I'm small. I have need and He has the resources. He has what I need in order to make it through this, in order to, to come out the other side with a smile on my face and my, my chin held high and, and able to, to say, thank God, even in the midst of adversity. So how we suffer is one avenue through which we can glorify God. In fact, Paul famously says in Second Corinthians chapter 12, speaking about his thorn in the flesh, that he besought the Lord three times that it could be removed from him. And God finally answers it and says that his, his grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for thee, he says. And Paul's response then is not merely to accept this with stoic resignation. Well, all right, God says his grace is sufficient, but I suppose I'll just have to grin and bear it. No, Paul goes much further than this. First, first, second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. God said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And here's Paul's response. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, 
that the power of Christ may rest on me. Knowing that God was at work and that God was had a purpose in this, which Paul discerned at least part of his purpose here was revealed to him, part of the purpose was so that Paul wouldn't be exalted above measure, lifted up in pride, uh, this, this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, was something that kept him low and weak and humble. Sometimes, you know, we, we need that. I used to ask my parents, um, who I thought were both, you know, reasonably smart people who could have gone out and made a million bucks out there, I would ask them sometimes, how come, how come we're so poor? Why don't we have more money than that? And, um, and, my, and my mother said, you know, I think the Lord knew we just couldn't handle it. So, <laughs> so you know, she acknowledged God's hand and, and, and even, you know, some of the minor inconveniences that come to being uh, lower middle class in America, which is really wealthy by the world's standards. But uh, it's, um, you know, overall, planet-wide, it's, it's still pretty wealthy. But, but it's it, it seeing the, the hand and purpose of God in, in matters that are even painful and unpleasant for us to bear. And if we can bear those adversities and infirmities with grace and by reflecting the goodness of God in our response, then that in itself is an act that glorifies God. Someone has said that the, um, the work of preaching the gospel, preaching of, of declaring the word of God, is, is, is like a, someone in the museum holding up a fine work of art and they're, they're wanting to show it to the, the crowd that wants to see it. But they, they sloppily kind of get their fingers around in the way and it obstructs the view of the picture. And they said, the best preaching is when we can hold up Jesus Christ and keep our fingers out of the way. When we can hold up a view of him that obscures ourselves, all the people can see is Christ. The more they can see Christ in us and in our response to life's ups and downs, the more we are able to glorify God in that manner. Let's look at a few passages in Revelation that that uh, give us a glimpse of the everlasting reality of this this calling to glorify God. If you think, perhaps, if you misunderstand that uh, maybe what we're talking about here is just only for the here and now, and then when we get to heaven we'll be floating on a cloud and floating the heart and eating ice cream or something, um, let me uh, let me correct your misapprehension. In Jude, uh, the last couple of verses of Jude before we get into Revelation, he says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, whose glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. And then Revelation proceeds uh, with a multitude of examples, I'll just touch on a few of them, to give us glimpses of scenes both in earth and in heaven that show the saint and the heavenly beings enraptured with the seemingly simple task of glorifying God. It is so fulfilling and so meaningful that, that it, it truly becomes their all-consuming activity. Revelation 4, 9-11 through is a very familiar passage. When the beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne and liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. That's easy to say in an abstract sense. Yes, God's created everything for His glory, but it's important to bring that home to ourselves, to realize that He created everything for His glory. That means me, too. He's created me. That is my divine purpose, to bring glory to His name. 
In the, on the next page, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb forever and ever. Why? Why all this glory to him? Because he is worthy. He's the only one worthy of that kind of praise and adoration. Revelation chapter 7, verse 12. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Uh, skip a few pages to Revelation chapter 19, the very beginning of this chapter. He says, After I heard these things, I heard of, after, after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. So this is in the uh, scene of Babylon's fall and the great victory of good over evil and the triumph of God over all of his enemies. And so even in the scene of bloodshed and destruction, the, 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 the saints' minds are drawn to the glory and grandeur of the God they serve. And then finally, Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 through 26 reading a description, I believe, of the heavenly city, heavenly Jerusalem. He says, The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. See, men have glory. It's just a far cry from God's glory. And he says, when, the, when these kings come in at the last day before the great king of kings and lord of lords, it will be unarguable, it will be obvious to everyone that men's great accomplishments that we thought so highly of are, the way Paul looked at it, just a pile of dung, just a pile of refuse, waste, garbage. And so they will come and lay down their honors at his feet, as defeated enemies or as submissive servants. Lay their honors down at his feet, acknowledging that he is the all-glorious one. Bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, makes this, I think, as simple and practical as, as it could possibly be said. In the context of some of life's most basic activities, eating and drinking. First Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Which, by the way, is a good rule of thumb to use to weed out some of the activities that at best distract and waste our resources, and at worst actually denigrate the glory of God. Ask yourself before you watch that movie, or go to that place, or engage in some activity and say, can I truly do this to the glory of God? Is this consistent with the way God has revealed that he desires to be served, that he deserves to be served? Give unto the Lord the glory in his name. God bless you.